feast, unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Following him, say to the owner of the house he enters. The teacher asks, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely not I. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread in the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. I will tell you the truth, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, today... Yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to study this text. Father, we're grateful the truth this text points to, that it's recorded for us that we may encounter it here today and so we pray for your spirit to help us i pray you would incline our hearts and our minds to what your word says perhaps we don't want to hear the word this morning perhaps we don't want to study so father i pray that you would grant us the grace necessary to do so thank you jesus for what we see in this text your body your blood what you are offering so that we might be yours pray that we would never become desensitized to the cost of our redemption and your willingness to pay it. We pray in our city today for the gospel to go out clearly. Please empower each of our pastor brothers that are proclaiming your word today, that they would proclaim your word faithfully, and that it would be for the good of all in our city. As always, we pray in this room, not just to be informed, but transformed by what we see. So help us now. In Jesus' name, amen. I want you to open to Exodus chapter 12. And while you're turning to Exodus chapter 12, if you were to walk into my office, there are at least three things that you would probably say are important to me. Uh, the first one would be books. You would probably guess, as most people who walk in for the first time, they're like, there are a lot of books in here. Uh, and books are important there. I'm um, like Paul. Paul wanted his parchments when he was in prison. He didn't even say, hey, bring me a snack. Bro was like, bring me the books. Uh, and so they are like baby blankets for me. For 
for many years, I still travel with a lot, but I'd always have a bag that was just books of, of things that I was dragging around with me. And so books are important. Uh, you could certainly tell what college I cheer for. If you were to walk in there, you could tell that LSU is important. It's a light and a dark place here where we've been transplanted, but uh, most people who walk in be like, you don't like LSU, do you? And, no. I don't. And so it's the same thing. We walk in, we go through books, we go through LSU, we go through a routine, you know, if if it's the first time they've been in there. But there's one other uh, thing I hope uh, would show uh, what's important to me. They're, they're either pictures of my children or pictures my children have drawn. And they're framed throughout. And I had them, uh, some in particular, sitting on my desk where they were facing me. And Tara's like, all we see are the backs of these pictures. I'm like, I don't care if y'all see them or not. I see them. I see the pictures of my kids, my family, all day long. And then the little things they've drawn. Uh, what you can't see when you walk into my office is that when my laptop goes on screensaver, it's all pictures of my family. It pops up pictures of my family, different stages of, of life, when we were wee little, moving here, things from um, when they were first born. And then on my watch, my watch, every time my watch pops up, there is a picture of my children or Tara, and each time it rotates through. And I do these things for several reasons. One, I use their pictures to fuel gratitude to the Lord. Houses and land are inherited from parents, but a wife is a gift from the Lord. And so I want to thank the Lord for the gift that he gave me and Tara. And then each child is a gift that he's entrusted to us. So I use the pictures to fuel gratitude. I use the pictures to fuel intercession. They remind me to pray for them. So throughout the day, their picture will pop up. I'll pray for them where they may be in school that day or, or something Tara may be doing and praying for the Lord's provision in, in her life. So it fuels prayer. Uh, I use it to fuel obedience in my life. When I travel, uh, Eric is always a great accountability partner to help me aim for purity when I'm away. Uh, but I use the pictures of my children or of my wife that pop up constantly. And so I won't be stupid. So I won't choose sin. So I won't choose disobedience uh, because I value them. I love them. And then I use their pictures to remind me of responsibilities I have as a husband and a father. That I should be doing what the Lord has, has called me uh, to do and the instructions that he's given. I don't have pictures in my office because I forget what they look like. Oh, that's the woman I'm married to. Okay, right? Oh, that's the kid I'm supposed to hug. Sorry for hugging your kid, right? No, I, I don't use pictures because I, I have forgotten. I use pictures uh, to push me to these at least four things that I've, I've shared with you to reach my mind and, and to touch my heart. The Lord, however, knows that sometimes we do need pictures to remind us. And in Exodus chapter 12, he had given Israel a picture that he wanted enacted each year so they would not forget what he had done for them. And in verse 17 of Exodus 12, it says this, You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. If you were to look in verse 24 of Exodus 12, says you shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever when you come to the land the lord will give you as he promised you shall keep this service and when your children say to you what do you mean by this service you shall say it is the sacrifice of the lord's passover for he passed over the houses of the people of israel in egypt when he struck the egyptians but spared our houses and the people bowed their heads and worshiped 
In chapter 13, verse 8, it says, You shall tell your son on this day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And then further down in chapter 13, verses 14 through 16, it says, And when the time, when in time to come, your son asks you, What does this mean? You shall say to him, By a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go to the Lord, to let us go the lord killed all the firstborn in the land of egypt both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals therefore i sacrifice to the lord all the males that first opened the womb but all the firstborn of my sons i redeem it shall be as a mark on your hand a frontless between your eyes for by a strong hand the lord brought us out of egypt and so god says i'm giving you a sign i'm giving you a picture so you can remember what we did but the picture isn't just for your generation this is something your sons and your grandsons they all need to to know about that how many of you remember a day when we had no microwaves anyone which uh um sub sub point on that we've been traveling around with these lenten lunches and and visiting other churches and and uh, I don't remember who was with me, but we were visiting one, and, and they were, uh, oh, Mitch was with me, and, and one of the ladies kind of complained, yeah, we need a new kitchen, kitchen's kind of outdated, and, and some of these other things, and so I just said, well, we have a microwave, <laughs> we really do, we have one microwave in the back, it's not even a kitchenette even, but we, we ha- and we got that because the other one broke, and, uh, and so uh, just this uh, perspective, which if you're coming this week, Cafe 212 will be providing our lunch, so uh, it's, it's worth that, right? And so perspective. Uh, some of us remember a day when we didn't have microwaves. Can you remember a day without internet? You remember those days? It seems so foreign to people. Uh, some of you may even remember no running water in your house. Anyone remember that? Yeah. I, I, Mr. Jim, my mom, granddaddy, you know, my mom often tells me stories that they had a porta potty and it was a two-seater. I'm like, no, I can't. I, no. <laughs> We're going to bond somewhere else, you know. <laughs> no. So there are some things we want to forget, and there are other things that we don't want to, and we make sure that we remember them. Uh, if you go out to Veterans Park, and, and there's the Vietnam War Memorial, because we want to remember those who lost their lives, helping fight for freedom, preserve freedom. And so in Exodus 13, in Exodus chapter 12, what we see, God gave an original picture of Passover so that one day when the kids say, why are we doing this? Why, why, why are we doing this? So that the response could be because of what the Lord did for us when he showed himself strong on our behalf. Of all the things that we talk about with our children, where does all the Lord has done for us rank in your conversations? How often are you having conversations that are triggered? Hopefully as we come to a table like this, that's the purpose that we can say, this is what the Lord has done for us. I hope our lives are causing our children to ask questions and that the answer is because the Lord set me free. This is why we're doing this. This is why we're serving in this way because the Lord rescued and redeemed me. As we come back to our text now in Mark chapter 14, they're engaging in that picture that the Lord had provided, that God had provided. It says in verse 12 of our text that on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? But as we come to our text, while everyone else perhaps in that town is looking backwards at what God had done, looking in the past, Jesus is looking forward. 
He is going to be the fulfillment of every Passover lamb that had been sacrificed since the time of Egypt. He, they were but shadows. He's going to be the reality of that. And he's going to be the fulfillment of that within the next 24 hours of this time frame, even, even less than that. And, but not everyone, not everyone had eyes to see that. And so what we want to pray this morning as we come to this text is that the Lord would grant us eyes to see it. And the one thing I, I wonder, I don't ask, are we prone to forget God's goodness? We are prone. That's why we sing it. We're prone to wonder, why are we prone to forget God's goodness? I've shared with you before, uh, one church historian said, the Christian life is a combination of amnesia and deja vu. He says, I know I've forgotten this before. I know that I've learned this, I've heard this, but I've forgotten it before. And so the hope is that as we encounter what we see in Mark 12 that, and Mark 14, that we will we will see a new picture. So what Jesus is doing is he's, he's going to take the old picture that the Father had given and he's going to say, here's a new picture of a new covenant and we're going to celebrate that today at this table. Putting this passage in a sentence, it's simply this. Jesus gave us a reminder to be practiced so we would never forget the price he paid for our redemption. He gave us a reminder to be practiced so we would never forget the price he paid for our redemption. So we want to remember several truths from this text, and we begin with wanting to remember Christ's providence and the preparations. You go on from verse 12. They've asked the question, hey, where do you want us to celebrate the Passover? And this is what we see in verse 13. It says he sent two of his disciples. Mark doesn't tell us, but another gospel writer says it's Peter and John. He said, which that was a leap of faith right there, sending Peter to prepare anything, wasn't it? You know? You might have had Twinkies for Passover. St. Peter, oh, just substitute something, John. You know, and there's no wonder why John gets to sit close to Jesus and Peter doesn't. But he sends two of the disciples and he says to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city. And this is a shocker, so you should underline it, found it just as he told them. And they prepared the Passover. And Mark has been telling us, showing us all the time that Jesus knows what's coming. All of these details. And here one more time as we move ever closer to the cross. One more aspect that Jesus knows. And this is because Jesus has made some arrangements. As biblical manhood's about initiation. Jesus has made some arrangements. To practice the Passover, they had to be in the confines of, of Jerusalem. And so as a part of that, folks that were in Jerusalem would try to accommodate as many people. And so... Uh, the room that they're talking about, the house would have been a box, and this would be an, a little box on top of that house, and and the people would open up uh, places for others to be able to observe and practice the Passover, and Jesus has made those arrangements, and he does, and so we see once again in Mark that what Jesus says is going to happen happens, no surprise, even the detail of a man carrying a water jar, which would have been unique. You'll remember prior to this, Jesus encountered a woman who'd come to collect water from a well. It's normally the women who are doing this, but there's a man. And, and so there's lots of thought in here of the prearranged sign of you know, follow this guy and, and we've got it worked out. Bottom line is it, it comes as he told them. But that's not all that we see comes as he says it will. We're going to see some more. But some of the reasons it's important to remember 
or even see this is that this is God's sovereign plan that things are playing out as he says and Jesus knows what's coming and he still walks into the city we never want to get over that but he also knows that betrayal is coming in verse 17 it says when it was evening he came with the 12 and as they were reclining at table and eating Jesus said truly I say to you one of you will betray me one who's eating with me they began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another is it I he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who's dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he'd not been born. And we see a reminder here in this text. It's going to be Judas, in case you don't know that. Judas is going to be the one that betrays him. Mark doesn't tell us that at this point. He did in the previous passage in verse 10 and 11 that Matthew covered last week. Judas has set up an arrangement to betray him. Jesus knows this. He knows what he's doing. And so there's a warning for us, though, uh, that there is an extent to which a person can give a profession of faith, and that profession of faith seems genuine, even among the people of God, that in the end that person still turns out to be reprobate. So no one turns to Judas and says, Say, bro, that's you? You going to do it? No, they're, they're all, who is it? So they're, they're not automatically accusing him. They're asking, is it me? And the amazing thing that is incredible here is God is going to advance his plan through Judas's disobedience. God is going to advance his plan. Or if you want to say it this way, Judas is, is going to be used to advance God's plan even as he freely chooses rebellion. In God's providence, he uses both what's meant for good and what's meant for evil. How does he do that? I don't know. I don't know how that works out. We see it with joseph's brothers and what they're doing is clearly evil and selling joseph but god is working out a plan and no one is coercing joseph's brothers even with even with judas he's making some choices here and under god's providence he's working all of these things and as i read that i begged this week in prayer god please move more through my obedience not my disobedience i don't want it to be my disobedience that he uses most to advance his plan i i, I want it to be the obedience and Judas deserves a bad rap. We're going to talk about this. But he's not the only one that's going to betray or deny Jesus. You look down in verse 26. And it says, When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it's written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter, however, and, and we're keeping score here. Jesus knows everything. Peter knows nothing. Peter says to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. Now look at what Jesus just said in verse 27. All of you will fall away. Now look at what Peter says. Even if they all fall away, I will not, right? And, <laughs> poor Jesus. Even in his last moments, he's having to deal with Peter, right? Parents, do you ever get exasperated correcting children? You know, uh, we've decided one of our children is most certainly going to be a lawyer uh, because he uh, has a gift of actually or argumentative or it could be you know and so we no longer let him spend time with granddaddy but we <laughs> we there's always a comeback and and, and even in jesus's last night peter's going -uh, no and then he just ramps it up he says e even if they all fall away imagine the other disciples at this moment right they're like say dog uh, you, you, all right, okay, we'll see how you are. And Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. So at this point, Peter says, Lord, you're right, I'm sorry, help me, right? 
No, not, not Peter. He doubles down. He says emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Now, I, I don't want to spoil it because you, you'll get it in the future. Who do you think was right, Jesus or Peter? <laughs> right, right? And so man, Peter is correcting Jesus. He thinks he's better than all the other disciples. And the problem is he relies on himself. And then shamefully, look at how he leads the others. The very last phrase of verse 31, they all said the same. So now that Peter's laying it out there, all the rest of them are like, me too, Lord. No, I, uh, uh, me too. He's, he's led these guys in self-reliance. If you and I want to betray Jesus, then all we have to do is think like Peter. I can do it. I got it. No matter what you say, no, 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 that's, that can't be right, Jesus. Uh, we need to flee to Christ, for apart from him we can do nothing. And we're often too confident in self, and you can know that based on how much you pray. You can know whether you're confident in self or whether you're dependent on him. And so we want to be vigilant, alert, sober-minded. And that's not going to happen in the next text. As they move toward Gethsemane, while Jesus is praying, they're going to be sleeping. And so there's not a vigilance there. Judas is going to be ruined, but Peter's going to be reconciled. Judas is going to receive judgment, but Peter's going to receive mercy. And the reason we need a Savior is because we've all betrayed. But what you don't want to miss in this text is at the Last Supper, Jesus knows who's going to betray him. John actually writes and says, It's he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I've dipped it. Therefore, Jesus was aware that night and the crucifixion the next day that everything was going according to plan. Things were not falling apart with one betraying him and one going to deny him. They were actually falling into place. And so we see his providence. We see his control. There is one other picture I want to give you. When you move to verse 22, as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. As you see the image, he's going to relate his body to the bread. Just one thing I want to note in this text, Judas isn't the one that breaks the bread. Peter's not the one who breaks the bread. And there's no soldier who breaks into this room and breaks the bread. It's Jesus breaking the bread, and it's the truth in his crucifixion. It wasn't a betrayal or denial. It is Jesus and his sovereignty laying down his life, allowing his body to be broken for our sake. A couple of reminders, just a sidebar application for you that I put in your notes. One can be around the things of Christ and not be devoted to Christ. Rejection of Christ is eternally dreadful. And then last, when following God's plan, don't be surprised if others sell you out. If you follow through and others all go away from you, no one is more equipped to comfort you than Jesus. All right? So we want to remember his providence because these aren't the wheels coming off. These are the wheels aligning. The second truth is we want to remember Christ's fulfillment of the Father's promises. Again, verse 22 says, As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. We'll see in a moment, Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7, would play out in this Passover meal, and there would be four cups that would be drunk at different times throughout the meal, different uh, moments. This cup, where Jesus is doing this, is most likely what would be called the third cup or the cup of blessing. But what we want to see, because some of us may be foggy, it says this is the blood of the covenant, the new covenant. What is it that Jesus is doing in this text? In order to see that, you need to hold your place and go back to Jeremiah 31. Hold your place in Mark and go back to Jeremiah 31. 
Because as Jesus is drinking this cup and as he's pouring out his blood, what he's doing is he is fulfilling promises the Father has made for a new covenant. In Jeremiah 31, beginning in verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquities and I will remember their sin no more. And so I don't know if the disciples, when they heard Jesus say, this is the blood of the covenant, uh, the other gospel writers will say, new covenant covenant. Uh, Paul will pick this up in 1 Corinthians, the blood of the new covenant. I don't know if they've really realized what Jesus was doing, because if they did, it is a ginormous moment. That means this is the most important meal in the history of the world, right? And that he is fulfilling what the Father promised. And in Jeremiah 31, God promised four things to his people. Here's the first one. He promises to forgive sins. He says at the end of verse 34, I will forgive their iniquity. So with the new covenant he's going to forgive the fact that they didn't keep the first covenant the fact that they chose rebellion and so as we see jesus pouring out his blood this is what's going to secure that that's what's going to cover that sin the forgiveness that comes from that he makes a second promise that instead of writing the law on tablets he's going to write the law on their hearts and this is what we're going to see that the holy spirit does he doesn't just encourage us the holy spirit empowers us moving from the inside out, changing our desires. And so when we drink the cup that is by the blood Jesus purchased, not a new law, but new life. The blood of the new covenant he purchases, not just our forgiveness, but our transformation, and not just our justification, but sanctification. There's a third promise. He promises that all the covenant people shall know him. I will put my law within them, right on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people that we will know him. You won't have to say to anyone else, know the Lord for they shall all know me. And so those who are part of his covenant people are those who personally know the Lord and that comes only through the blood that Jesus is pouring out. And then one last promise, I will be their God and they will be my people. When our sins are forgiven, When his law becomes our delight, and when we know him, we are his and he is mine. We are his and he is ours. And so we love Jesus because this is what his blood is doing. And so as he says, this is the cup or the blood of the new covenant, Jesus is fulfilling these promises that God made hundreds of years before. He's come to be a part of fulfilling that. And without the blood, there would be no fulfilling of these promises so going back to mark this is what's happening this is the point in redemption in which jesus is in issuing bringing in this new covenant and he's doing so at great cost matter of fact he says it's my blood being poured out for many that's what's going to secure these things which then gets us to one last truth i'm going to show you from this text and for all my ocd friends Your first truth said, remember Christ. Your second one said, remember Christ. And the third one said, remember Jesus. So just remember 
Sometimes our brains get foggy. Remember Christ's fulfillment of an old practice and his installation of a new picture and practice. In verses 22 through 25, it says this, as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank of it. He said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. This is where Jesus goes off script. So instead of taking that third cup and doing the traditional cup of the blessing, he takes it and he says, this is my blood poured out. And Luke is going to record him saying, do this in remembrance of me. And he's not going to go to that fourth cup. The fourth cup was the cup of consummation. He's going to celebrate that with us one day. He's going to do that one day. But while they've come to Jerusalem, while he is in town, and while these things are occurring, fathers would have been killing the Passover lambs and telling their children that God had rescued them by the blood of the lamb. While Jesus was in town, priests would have been sacrificing lambs and telling the people how God rescued them through the blood of the lamb. All the while, the true sacrifice of the lamb is actually going to occur outside the city with blood running down a cross with the heavenly father proclaiming, I provided to the lamb a substitute for your sons, but for my son there is no substitute. My son is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world and by his blood I redeem my people. Jesus is the fulfillment of the old picture. Substitution in the Bible happens from the very beginning with the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve are clothed because two animals die in their place in order for the Father to clothe them and to clothe them, and we see substitution from the very beginning of all things. You then move to Passover and, and when when God was coming to Egypt Israelites, their biggest problem was no longer Egypt. It was God. When you're in the presence of God, you need provision from God or you have a big problem with God. And so God makes a way for them to be safe. They take a lamb, they put the blood on the door. The objective salvation is there behind that blood. The subjective is they had faith to trust God, what he said. And they stay behind that door. And the reason that they hugged their son the next morning is because a lamb was dead in his place. You move on and there'll be the day of atonement where substitution occurs. One animal is slaughtered, one animal is sent out into the wilderness as pictures of both propitiation and expiation, God atoning for our sins and God removing our sins. And then one day Jesus is walking and John the Baptist sees him and says, hey, look, there's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so Jesus is the fulfillment, all of those other lambs. And just think through the years, thousands and thousands of lambs died. And none of their blood accomplished what the one death of Christ did. Because they were all the shadow. He was the fulfillment. Peter sees Jesus as our substitute. He says in 1 Peter 1, Knowing you were ransomed from the feudal ways you inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Paul says, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been has been sacrificed the author of hebrews sees jesus as the fulfillment of these things and the most important question is how do we see him now, put there in your notes the new testament writers see jesus's death as the fulfillment of the passover he suffered in the place of his people in order that they might be marked out by his blood and thus spared from god's wrath jesus does not drink that fourth cup after he says this it's because you'll see next week in gethsemane there's another cup he's going to drink and it is the cup of god's wrath and a summary of that goes like this. If we knew the scripture as Jesus does, 
scriptures that no doubt have been on his mind in these hours, we couldn't escape this reference from Isaiah 51, 17. There's a cup that's in God's extended hand. It's the cup of his wrath. And for those who drink from it, it's called the cup of staggering. This cup contains the full vehemence and fierceness of God's holy wrath poured out against all sin. And we discover in scripture that it's intended for all of sinful humanity to drink. It's your cup and mine. In the vivid imagery of the Old Testament, the cup is filled with fire and sulfur and a scorching wind, like some volcanic firestorm, like all the fury of the Mount St. Helens eruption concentrated within a coffee mug. No matter, no wonder scripture says that tasting from this cup causes the drinker to stagger and be crazed. No wonder that when Jesus stares into the detestable vessel, he stumbles to the ground. That's why there's shuddering terror and deep distress for him at this moment. In the crucible of human weakness, he's brought face to face with abhorrent reality of bearing our iniquity and becoming the object of God's full and furious wrath. So when we read this text, his blood is being poured out. We can't help but be blown away that first of all there's a God who wants to keep promises to people who never keep them and in order for him to keep those promises it costs him his son and in order for his son to let us drink from these cups he drank from the cup that we all should have drunk from a cup of staggering a cup of wrath Jesus then gives a new picture of redemption as he fulfills the old picture he gives a new one take this bread it's my body and he doesn't wait don't don't think this don't think that they just had a a ceremonial time and they remember but I, i can assure you that every time they took bread and broke it and blessed it they would think back to this picture how would you not you ever go through something where you can't see it the same again you see it differently for the rest of your journey Every time they would have broken bread and blessed, they certainly would have been reminded of this picture. But he does want to give them a new picture. And so I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, because while we're here, it gives us a moment to consider the Lord's Supper. And then we're going to move toward the table ourselves. And we're going to participate in this that Jesus has earned for us. Why do we practice this picture? Why do we roll it out here every month? And the first reason we're going to see is because we're commanded to do so. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul writes to correct the church at Corinth. I love the book of Corinthians because they got so many things jacked up, we can learn from it, right? And it's a reminder, it didn't take long for churches to get jacked up, right? I love all of the epistles because Paul's like, what are y'all doing? I mean, what are y'all doing, right? And so the book of Corinth, the first letter to the church of Corinth is so much like that. What's wrong with y'all? And so he says in verse 17, in the following instructions, I do not commend you. And and ladies, if you're upset that I skipped all the head coverings, we can just stay afterward and and go over that and be a real blessing for you. But we'll just pick up in 17. And the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. Well, how do you really feel, Paul? He says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. 
For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he'd given things, he broke, thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So the reason that we do this is because twice he says, Do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. It's, it's a command. It's the new picture that he wants to give as a part of this new covenant. All the gospel writers record what Jesus is saying here. And, and what we can tell is the disciples picked up on it because Corinth is practicing it. They're not doing it great, but they're at least observing. And Paul's calling it the Lord's Supper. That's where we get the name of it from because he says the Lord's Supper there in verse 20. The question is, what are we doing when we observe this table? What are we doing when we come to this table? I think there are four actions that we're doing. We're proclaiming the gospel we're saying once again, God reigns and we've rebelled and the cost of that is Christ. So we're proclaiming the gospel. We're remembering Jesus. That's what we're told to do. We're nourishing and strengthening our faith and we're examining our relationship with the Lord and others. That's what we do when we come to the table. These four actions, we proclaim the gospel, remember Jesus, nourish and strengthen our faith and we examine our relationship with the Lord and others. Now the question is, who should practice this? How many of you have ever been a parent and had a child say, I want that? Never, right? We enjoy giving you that opportunity the first Sunday of every month to battle it out. Why can't I drink it, right? Why can't I have the big, scrumptious, nourishing cracker? The little square, right? It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing when you can't have it, how much you want the little bitty cracker piece, right? Uh, and, and that big gulp. So uh, who, is to, who is to practice this? Well, five times in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together. But in verse 18 in particular, he says, when you come together as a church. Who is supposed to practice the Lord's Supper? The church. Those who are in Christ, those who have repented and believed, that's who this supper is for. Because what we do at this supper is we proclaim Christ is our life. That we have put our trust in Christ, we've identified with him in his death and burial and resurrection through baptism, and that we continue to come to the table is a sign of our continual need for Jesus. So this table is for those who are in Jesus. And I do think it's best practiced as a church. And when we come together, intergenerational. I'm not a huge fan when youth groups uh, do the Lord's Supper at youth camp because youth are not all there is to the church. Youth are a part of the church, but this is a, a sign that's given to the church. I'm, I'm not even a, a huge fan when it's done at weddings. If it, it was at yours, I, you look, awesome. It was great, you know. Uh, if you have kids and want me to do it, we're, look, I'll let you do it and I'll step to the side. But we practice it best in to whom it was given to the church as they come together. This is a picture. There's something we're saying together. When should we practice it? Well, he just says as often as you do it. Some people do it quarterly. I've told you growing up, I would walk in and they'd have the big white sheet over the big table. Anyone grow up with that, the big white sheet? And inevitably, I'd always think, who died? You know, my grandma would be like, Jesus, right? And so I was scared to death. There was a body under there, you know? I was like, who died? <laughs> she, mama, Jesus. So um, we would do it quarterly. And I got I to gotta tell you, it, I, I, didn't, I didn't feel like it came around enough to really fully appreciate. There are others that do it every Sunday, and they can do it without becoming desensitized to it. 
Uh, in the same way that there's preaching and singing and praying and giving in every service, they make the Lord's Supper a part of that because it does push us to examine ourselves, examine our relationships with each other. We currently have the practice of the first Sunday of every month because we want to start every month together with the reminder, Jesus is our only hope. And so that's the, the practice that we have, but the frequency, it's not dictated, and so we want to give freedom. Uh, those who do it every Sunday, hopefully they don't scorn us uh, for doing it once a month, but uh, we want to give freedom in those areas. All right, how should we practice the Lord's Supper? And there's a, a couple responses here, and uh, John Piper has been very helpful for me in this track of it. One, there's a, there's a physical aspect. It's not meant to be a buffet or potluck, all right? Now, Corinth was practicing it, but not well. They were coming together, and they were eating, and the problem is some of the wealthy people were eating, and the poor people didn't have anything to eat, so the wealthy people were eating, the poor people were just over there in the corner, and then they would add the Lord's Supper onto it, and Paul's like, what are you doing? What, what, what is this? He said, it's not supposed to be a five-course meal. It's a two-course meal. There are two elements. Then there is the bread, and there's the drinking of the cup. And Jesus says, the fruit of the vine, that's what we saw in Mark. And, and so there's some folks who choose which fruit or how they want that fruit of the vine. We currently use grape juice, all right? And so, uh, again, we leave some freedom for the fruit of the vine, but there's bread and there's the fruit of the vine, and there's no instructions. So the question is, we have some gluten-free bread here, I think, don't we? Do we? We normally do, on both sides, all right? I can't see. Is it in the little bowl in front? Yeah, I couldn't see him. So the question is, I mean, is Jesus gluten-free? So, I mean, if we, you're like, well, it was unleavened bread. Well, technically, yes, the Passover would use unleavened bread, but we're actually never given instruction. You could use pumpernickel bread, you know, but th this is the problem when people go crazy. I read this week about, hey, uh, let's practice the Lord's Supper. We're going to use bagels and Coke at the campfire. I was like, you've lost your mind. So that, that, that's where we begin to see it branch out. But there are no specific instructions given about the bread. The only, only thing is, look, there is a physical aspect because it's meant to be a taste of our deliverance. We've seen this. It's a taste of what's to come. He says, if you're hungry, eat before you come. So this isn't meant to be, oh, I'm stuffed. This is meant to say something else. If you're, if you're hungry, eat so you won't be hangry when you come to the Lord's Supper, Right? And so there's a physical aspect. There is also a mental aspect. When you come to this table, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Do this in remembrance of me. I hope that you never veg out when you participate in the Lord's Supper. I hope that you constantly remember that God sent his son to take on our flesh, and he willingly did that. And for year after year after year, he resisted sin. And then in one particular year, he walked into Jerusalem to be the fulfillment of all that it pointed to and at great suffering. Matter of fact, the greatest suffering ever known. And what Jesus says is, remember that. Remember, there's a mental aspect that's a part of this. There's also a spiritual aspect. Hold your place in, in chapter 10 there in 1 Corinthians and turn back to verses 16 through 18 in 1 Corinthians 10. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. And so the word there for participants is one that you probably heard growing up. Have you ever heard of koinonia? You ever heard that word? This fellowship, this partnership, that's the word that's used there. 
And Paul in, in, point eight, in verse 18 is saying, those who brought the animals to the altar, they're, they're participating in, in what comes with that. In the same way, we who come to the cup and the bread, we participate. And I put a summary there for you from Piper. It says, when believers eat the bread and drink the cup physically, we do another kind of eating and drinking spiritually. We eat and drink, that is, we take into our lives what happened on the cross. By faith, by trusting in all that God is for us in Jesus, we nourish ourselves with the benefits that Jesus obtained for us when he bled and died on the cross. When we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we feast spiritually by faith on all the promises of God bought by the blood of Jesus. There is also a serious aspect to the Lord's Supper. We, we don't perhaps mention this enough, but look back now in 1 Corinthians 11, in verse 27, this is what Paul writes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged but when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Imagine if someone participated in this table today and they died before they made it out of the room. Would you talk about that at lunch? Yeah. I always imagine Ananias and Sapphira. I love an axe when it says, great fear sees. I was like, really? You know, folks dying in church because they're lying to the Holy Spirit. Uh-huh. Revival has come. Let me think of everything I might have misspoke. All right, let me just throw it out here. Uh, put the summary there for you. Paul warns that if you come to the Lord's Supper in a cavalier, callous, careless way that does not discern the seriousness of what happened on the cross, you may, if you're a believer, lose your life, not because of wrath, but as an act of God's fatherly discipline. And you, you see that, and it says in verse 32, discipline so that we won't be condemned. It's just a discipline of, this is a big deal, and it's meant to cause us to examine, are we in right relationship with God, and are we in right relationship with each other? which leaves us that we should be moved anew with love for God and others. How can we not love God in response to all that we've encountered here today? How does this table not push us to love God and then love for others? They should have been making sure that everyone had food. When we come to the cross, how is self-denial not a part of that? How is concern for others? The concern the Lord demonstrates for us should fuel our concern for others. I want you to go back to, to Mark 14 just for a moment. After Jesus shares us, and this is the last meal he'll have with his disciples on this side of the cross. It says in verse 26, when they sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And you know, there weren't glasses on the windows. And I imagine what it would have been like to, to hear them sing. To hear Jesus singing, knowing what he was going to. Knowing what he was leading them to and to... I love that we see Jesus singing. Uh, author of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And even in these moments, he's praising, he's thinking. Uh, Psalm 118 is one that's referenced in much of, of what uh, is said in the events of the, of the cross and the events of that last week. And there's some thought that this would have been sung, whether it was the last one or, or not. We always sang Amazing Grace when, at my church. Did anyone else do that? When we would practice the Lord's Supper, our church would always sing Amazing Grace. 
Um, apparently, we went as far back as John Newton, not quite to David. And so, um, we, would, we would sing that. But Psalm 118 is where I want to close today. Here's what the psalmist says, and this is what would have been sung certainly that week and most, most possibly in that last song before moving to Gethsemane. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, his steadfast love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, his steadfast love endures forever. Out of my distress, I called on the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me free. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They went out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he's not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. I love verse 23. This is the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. And that's what I want to ask you this morning. Is it? Is what God has done for us in Jesus marvelous in your eyes? As we move to respond this morning, we're going to come to the table. And as you do, just a couple questions. Is there any way in which the Lord is advancing his plans more because of your disobedience than obedience? I want to invite you this morning, repent. Beg the Lord, beg the Lord, let it be through my obedience, Lord. Let me not be working against you in my, my way. Let it be through the obedience. Is there any way, like Peter, you are reliant upon you? That your confidence is in you. And no matter how many times Jesus tells us to be vigilant and watchful, somehow you walk out of here and you face Sunday afternoon thinking, I got this. Maybe this morning we need to fall afresh to this table to say, I don't have this. I need you. We need to repent of self-reliance. If there's any way you've been denying Jesus, maybe in front of coworkers, maybe in front of family, would you repent of that? Seek forgiveness. The Lord is worthy of not being hidden or denied in front of others. If perhaps you've not been grateful that God keeps promises, maybe just that small phrase, the blood of the new covenant. 
would wash afresh over us because God has promised to forgive our sins. You know what that means? That when we come to this table, it is because Christ has not covered some of our mess. He has covered all of our mess. Jesus is there because God keeps his word and his word says, I'm going to forgive all of it. I'm going to be indwelling them. They will know me. See, that's salvation. Jesus says, this is salvation, knowing him who sent me. The highest prize of the gospel is to know God, to be reconciled to God. If that's not been precious to you, confess that. Ask the Lord to break the coldness in your heart to that. And that we will be his people, a people for his own possession. Jesus is keeping those promises through his blood. And if we're desensitized to this sign right here, on oh, the table, oh, it's first Sunday. And before you ever approach, beg God to break your heart. It's isn't just bread and juice. It's a reminder that all of God's promises are yes in Jesus, all because he forsook Jesus, that we might have faith, that we might be brought in. And that the only reason that you and I can have this cup is because Jesus drank to the bottom the full cup of God's wrath. And so if that's not something that moves you to say, I extol the Lord. I praise the Lord. This is marvelous in my eyes. Then beg God in this room right now, make it fresh. Give me gratitude for what you've done in Jesus. You don't have to be a member of Trace Crossing to participate in our table. This table is for everyone who's in Christ. You do have to have repented and believed. You're welcome to come and get these elements. And the way we're going to do it this morning, I want to invite you to come and get the bread and the juice and take those back to your families, to your friends, and you pray to Jesus today and thank him. Let me pray for us and we'll move to the table. Father, thank you for this morning and the chance to study your word. We see that nothing was catching you off guard, Jesus, that the plans for the Passover preparations, knowing Judas was going to betray you, knowing Peter was going to deny you, all of that just further evidence that things were moving according to plan. I'm sorry for the times that we betray or deny you. Sorry for the times that we rely more upon self than upon you. We don't heed what you say for whatever reason. We see Peter right here. He's clearly recorded as thinking he knows better than you. And I'm certain we have plenty of moments where that could be us. So I'm sorry when it appears that we don't acknowledge that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to you. And we try to take some sense of that, some authority of our own. It's not ours to have. You are the king. May it be evident that you lead us. God, I, I don't have the words today to express fully why you would want a covenant with people who are not faithful to you. But I think you, what we see in the new covenant is it's not just about having laws on the outside. That our hope is that you work from the inside out. And all of that is made possible because Jesus is pouring his blood out to be the payment for that new covenant, to seal it, sealed by that blood. So it means that the promises that you say you will keep forever, the 
price has been paid. If we are cold this morning and desensitized to this table and the elements here, would you break our hearts afresh at the great price that's been paid for our redemption? And would you help us in the next few moments when we take these elements into our hands, when we hold them, when we chew them, when we drink it, help us remember Jesus. And then know that spiritually our faith can be strengthened in this time. I pray, Father, that you would help us then as we go from this place, remember Jesus. So thank you for this opportunity. Thank you that there is a table. Help us to worship Jesus now through these elements. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you come and grab these?